So what we're going to do, I know we're in Genesis, uh, but you should be used to this by now. We're in Genesis, um, so we just go through it really slowly. Last week, uh, I rushed through a lot of that, unfortunately. So what I want to do is actually look at Luke chapter 4, um, but look at Luke because of its parallel with Genesis 25. So we're still sort of studying the uh, Esau uh, narrative where he gives up his birthright. We're just going to look at it from a different perspective um, and... Uh, hopefully, this will be uh, helpful. Uh, Luke 4. Uh, this, of course, is the temptation of Jesus. Um, Luke 4. We just want to read the first four verses, so we're not going to look at the whole temptation. Um, um, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So this, of course, is the first of three temptations, and this story is recorded in all three synoptics. In Mark's gospel, it's a single verse, and there's not a lot of detail. But in Matthew and Luke, they are very, very similar. Um, and I, I trust we, we are familiar with it. Did you know that you can survive without eating? Do you know that? You can survive without eating food. Yeah, yeah you're like, well, not in a Baptist church you won't, right? I'll tell you what, preacher, tell us we ain't going to eat and you'll be looking for another church where you can starve. Um, well, I'm going to prove it to you. Uh, this gentleman here is a Scotsman um, by the name of, here we go, Angus Barberi, I'm probably mis mispronouncing that last name. After reading those names Sunday morning, I get at least one mispronunciation. Uh, but Angus, which is a perfect Scottish name, we can all agree on that, uh, lived from 1939 to 1990. He uh, went into the hospital um, uh, for, for uh, some health reasons, some of it caused by his, his obesity, um, and he didn't want to go through that again. So for 382 days... He fasted. 382 days. He holds the record for the longest fast in history. Guinness records will not record this anymore because they feel like it's encouraging people to do uh, unhealthy habits. Now, he did fast. Uh, however, uh, he basically lived off of tea, coffee, soda water, and most importantly, the main thing he lived off of were vitamins or vitamins, as you Americans say. He's a Scotsman. It's, it's vitamins, okay? And uh, they're in the hospital. He, he told the doctors his plan. And they said, if you're going to do this, we need you to meet with us regularly. And they basically prescribed, you know, over-the-counter stuff, but basically prescribed a regimen of vitamins that he could take to stay alive. You think about it, that food in America is for entertainment. It's why we go out to eat so much. But food is really nothing more than nourishment. When you eat, you are putting into your bodies nutrients. Maybe good, maybe bad. That's why we don't need that baby formula. What we need is whole milk, right, Don? Yeah, to the glory of God, right? Tell that to the president. Um, but so uh, he lost uh, 276 pounds in 382 days. I want you to do the math. That is almost a pound a day he's losing. Um, and there he is uh, in his old britches, uh, all because he stopped eating. Now, you're asking the question that I'm still asking. 
was he hungry all the time? Right? Don't you? Don't, isn't that the question? Like, I would love to be able to do something like this. I don't. I don't need that. Lose that sort of weight, but but I like. I need to lose some weight. And and if I could just not have the hunger pains, I'd love to fast like that. I've done intermittent fasting. You go down to one meal a day, or just two meals a day with a twenty hours in between, or or sixteen hours in between meals, or whatnot. Um, but but that is hard enough. Now imagine going three hundred and eighty-two days. Uh, I believe I read his first meal after the fast was like a, a slice of bread with peanut butter on it and like an egg, right? Now, you, you think about it. If you were to go on a prolonged fast, you, your ability to consume as much food drops dramatically. Uh, that's been my problem is, is I can just down the food. Uh, I mean, over at the convention, I, I did not eat anything healthy. Uh, to the glory of God, I did not. So, um, uh, but it is possible to survive without food. Now, we naturally can't imagine doing anything like that because we often think the stomach and the body is for food, to, to quote the Apostle Paul. Now, remember what we said last week, that in the Bible, our physical appetites is used metaphorically to describe our spiritual appetites. So, to, so then, if, if we can live physically without food, with enough self-restraint and wisdom, then we ought to be able to do the same with spiritually speaking, we should be able to spiritually live without um, such unnecessary um, uh, nutrients, if, if, if you will. I'm going to show you um, these three stories and that they are written in such a way that we are to see the parallels, that it's almost the same story told three times. There's some differences. It's the story of Eve eating of the fruit in Genesis 3, Esau that we looked at in great detail uh, last uh, Wednesday, Genesis 25, and this story of Jesus' temptation in Luke 4, the parallel being in Matthew 4. Let me show you just a few of the uh, parallels. There are three deceivers. Now, I had that all matched up whenever I hit save. Oh, well. There are three deceivers in these stories. The serpent, obviously. The crafty servant comes to deceive. Jacob. Now, how is Jacob a deceiver? Well, one, we see in the story, he says, I'll give you this, but first you got to give me that. But the name Jacob is important. Remember the story of his birth is he's the heel catcher, right? That he's holding on to Esau's heel. So he's named Jacob because Jacob means supplanter or deceiver. So in the first story involving Jacob, the soon-to-be son of promise, which is where we'll pick up Lord willing next week in chapter 26, he gets the Abrahamic covenant given to Jacob. Well, um, he uh, is known as a deceiver. The first story involving Jacob is he plays the role of the serpents, where he offers food to Esau, who is vulnerable. He is a deceiver. And, of course, Satan there in Luke chapter 4. There are three foods, fruit for Adam and Eve, soup for Esau, bread for Jesus. There are three vulnerabilities. Remember that the serpent is described as being crafty, right? And, and she is fooled and, and deceived by the serpent. Uh, Esau is famished. That's the word I like that is used there. And Jesus is fasting for 40 days. Um, I'm sure he was on soda, water, tea, coffee, and vitamins, right? Um, but he fasted 40 days, so he's in a vulnerable state of hunger and need. The uh, language of life, that's just a generic, I don't know whatever the word to use there. For example, under Eve, uh, the phrase, you will surely not die. Uh, Esau, remember what he says is, what good is a birthright if I am dead? And with Jesus... 
It is man shall not live by bread alone. So the language of life and death is used in all three stories. There are, and then we see in each story the three appetites uh, that John tells us. Lust of the eyes, the uh, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So Eve sees that the fruit was good. It was, it was um, uh, good to make one wise, right? So too, Jesus here is tempted with uh, uh, what he sees, what he desires, and so on and, and so forth. So we, we see these, these parallels. So we are purposely to see that Jesus is living through the experience of humanity and Israel. Remember, Jacob's name is going to be changed to Israel. We could broaden this out. Uh, the story laid out here in Luke 4 is a retelling of the Jewish story in the wilderness. That is why when Jesus quotes the Old Testament here, he quotes from a single book, the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a sermon from Moses, sort of as the last will and testament in, in a sermonic form, to the Israelites. And what Jesus is saying to Satan, I've read this story before. It's the same temptations. It worked before. It's not going to work here. That's why Jesus is fasting for 40 days, because that correlates to 40 uh, years in the wilderness. This is made very evident in Matthew's account. I've, I've, shown, I've shown that before, so I don't want to spend forever on it. Um, notice here in verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Again, 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus, 40 years in the wilderness for, for Israel. Now, when we think of the wilderness here, we often think of sand. A, a better imagery here for us would be to think of stones. That is why when Satan comes and says, turn these stones into bread, what he doesn't have in mind is a handful of rocks he found by the creek. What he has in mind is a desert of stones. Imagine if, if you will, I'm sure we've all done this, uh, ever go grocery shopping hungry? You, you are convinced you could eat everything there. Just absolutely convinced you can do it. Uh, now, you buy too much, you get home, and you realize, oh, that shouldn't have bought all that sort of stuff. Now imagine going 40 days without eating any cycle grocery shopping. Everything looks like you could eat, including the shelves, right, the carts, and, and uh, the little children screaming in the next aisle. You know, you, you could just eat it all. Uh, so, too, going 40 days, you're in a desert of stones, and the temptation is turn all these stones into bread. Um, surely you, you could eat, eat all that. And in verse 2, I, I just love this. Um, he, uh, he goes, he, he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, here it is, he was hungry. <laughs> you think, right? <laughs> it's, it's a, duh. Or as my daughter likes to say, da-doy, right? That make you just want to. That is almost as bad as the whatever or whatevs. That's what it is, whatevs. You ever have a teenager years ago say whatevs to you? Oh, it still bothers me thinking about it. I'm glad that, that trend is no longer around. Whatevs, you know what, just boink right in the eyes. That's what my grandfather used to say. He'd want to boink you in the eyes. So I don't know. Anyways, you don't care. Uh, Genesis, uh, this, this again has parallels. In Genesis 25, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in the field. He was exhausted, famished. He was starving to death. And that's, that's what it is. You see the same thing here as well. Um, and, and again, in verse 3, the, the temptation is, if you're the son of God, command this, this stone or these stones in Matthew's gospel to, to become bread. That word bread is important um, because to us, bread is an option. Or really, it's an appetizer at your favorite restaurant, right? That, that's where bread... But in, in Jesus' time, bread was perhaps the most essential food. It was readily available, easily, easy to be fixed, 
and everybody ate bread all the time. My father-in-law, if he does not have bread when he eats, he is an unhappy camper, right? Because he grew up uh, cornbread and beans, right? Uh, I've told you this story before. When Matt and I were, were, were first dating, I went over to her house for, for the first time uh, for longer than, you know, 10 minutes to meet everybody. And we had watched a movie with her family or something like that and came down for dinner. And we had two things. Uh, one was rice, that the Lipton rice. Just boil it and you're done, right? We eat rice. And then so Manda fixes the, the, I had her trained then. She fixes the plate. It's got rice on it. She puts it in front of me. And I think, okay, I got rice. Good. We're going to eat. She then goes over grabs a single slice of bread, right? And I'm sure she put the tie back on, which drives me crazy. And then she put bread onto my plate. I thought, what is this for? Like, where's the bologna and cheese? They're bread. Okay. So I ate the rice, never touched the bread. And my wife and mother-in-law says, what's the matter, boy? You don't like bread. Like, I like bread just fine. It doesn't go with rice right? For one, it's not a full meal. And I told you last week, I could have eaten like four of those things of rice, right? All by myself at, at 16 years old. And, and so like, who eat, do we just eat bread like that? And ever since then, my mother-in-law's convinced I don't like bread. She just can't get it out of her head. I don't, I don't like bread. I like bread just fine, right? G- g- give me steak, potatoes, and I'll eat all the rows you want, right? Uh, I tell you, breakfast ain't complete without, without meat, egg, cheese, and a biscuit, right? You can have pancakes, you can have everything you want. Put that on a biscuit to the glory of God, right? In fact, instead of biscuits, turn the pancakes into your bread. Put the meat, the egg, and the cheese on there. Now, now we are living to the glory of God. We're not living long, but we're going to be living to the glory of God, right? You know? Uh, so, so I like bread, right? right? But he grew up bread. I, I didn't grow up with bread with, with, with every meal. In Jesus' day, bread often was the meal. Jesus, remember, is from the house of bread, Bethlehem. So this temptation really gets to him right, right, right where, where he is. And that is why Satan tempts Jesus to turn the stones not into ramen noodles, but to bread. Bread carries with it for Jesus more than it might, might for us. And so the temptation here is for Jesus to, uh, is to reject the provisions of, the, of his father in favor of his appetite, the flesh. He is hungry. He is entitled. God isn't providing for him. And you'll notice in verse 4, Jesus' response. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. A couple things to note there. One is, notice, Jesus is not denying that man should live on bread. The, the uh, aesthetics that, that, that say that you should just reject the flesh entirely. No, Jesus says eating bread is a good thing. Nothing in the Bible says eating is, is, is wrong, right? There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible associates food with fellowship, you know? Um, and so, so he's not saying eating bread is bad. The key word here is alone. Man should not live by his appetites alone. That's where the problem is. And so uh, he would then apply it that food is good, but it can be easily abused. Uh, sex is good, but can easily be abused. Money, power, influence, everything is good, but can be easily abused. We can turn good things into God things, we could say. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 8. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know. Notice there, God allowed them to be hungry. It's part of the plan. He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. Notice the, 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 the issue in the wilderness is a testing of the people of God. You've come out of physical slavery. The wilderness experience is to bring them out of spiritual slavery. So when Jesus enters into the wilderness, it is a retelling of the wilderness story of, of, of his, of his uh, ancestors. Um, and so where they failed, Jesus triumphs. Um, but instead, man shall live by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, what I want to do is to, to, to we'll revisit some of the things we talked about last week, but I want to spend a little more time on some of these. So I won't use the same terms, but you'll see some, some overlap. Uh, a couple of things to see here when it comes to temptation and our appetites. One is temptation comes when we are most vulnerable. We mentioned this last week. The chances are that on the average day, if Jacob was fixing the red stuff, the soup, and you went up to Esau and said, Esau, do you like this vegan stuff that Jacob's eating? He'd say, no, I ain't no vegan. But when he is at the point of exhaustion, he is in a vulnerable state that even the red stuff looks enticing. Think about it. How many of us, when we are confronted with, with let's say, a public sin, someone we love or know, something like that, Often we will look at that situation and we will say, I would never do that. Or we'll say, I can't fathom why they would make that decision. That is unlike them to do that. The reason is that when we are vulnerable, we are susceptible to do things we otherwise would never think of doing. Esau agrees to eat the red stuff. He becomes the red stuff. Remember, Adom, red stuff, becomes Edom, Edom, the red stuff people. That becomes his, his name and the name of the nation he, he has founded. Uh, and so, um, um, uh, and you remember that for Esau, his identity was tied to his ability to hunt food. You said that uh, Rebekah loved Jacob, period. Isaac loved uh, Esau, because of the food he caught, he killed and fixed. So when Esau is out there hunting and he's not catching anything, he stays out in the wilderness, the field rather, until he can, until the point of exhaustion. He nearly dies trying to earn his father's love. And in that moment of vulnerability, he settles for something he would find disgusting otherwise. Vulnerability is, is key when understanding temptation. When we're not vulnerable, we're, we're less likely to give in to temptation. But in those weak moments, we're alone, when we're away, when we are depressed and going through sorrow and suffering, whatever it might be, in those vulnerable moments, we can really surrender to sin. Uh, this is a, uh, something that, that we see here, of course, Jesus here uh, going 40 days without eating. Um, but we also need to see here is... In Luke's Gospels, which I want to look at Luke's account as opposed to Matthew's, is, is at the heart of this issue of vulnerability is the issue of identity. When we are vulnerable, we start to question God's goodness um, or, or um, his righteousness. And so we start saying things like, well, if God really loved me, I wouldn't be in this situation. That's vulnerable language. So what Luke does is he tackles that head on. 
Ultimately, what the temptation in, in, for Jesus come down to is whether or not Jesus sees God as his father. At the heart of every temptation is, who is God? And who am I in relation to God? I think I could prove this from Luke's gospel. Um, go back to Luke chapter 3. Luke 3, we, we meet John the Baptist, right? Repent for kingdom God is at hand. I want you to know this language. You can go down to verse 2 for the sake of time. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, which we'll come back later to crucify Jesus, the word of God came to John. Notice that, the son of Zechariah. So if you were to ask, who is John? He'll tell you, I'm the son of Zechariah. And there's no question about that. Everyone would have known who John the Baptist was because everyone knew who Zechariah was. Zechariah, which we've already seen in Luke's gospel, if you read the, the nativity story, was a loving father who, like Abraham, is gifted a child, a, a son of promise uh, 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 in his elderly age. The story of Zechariah uh, and Elizabeth mirrors that of Abraham and, and Sarah. Okay? So right there from the beginning, we see that language of sonship and fatherhood. Go down to chapter 3, verse 21. This is at the uh, baptism of Jesus. Now, when all the people were baptized, now, and, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, you see the juxtaposition? For John, his, his daddy is Zechariah. For Jesus, the question is, who is Jesus' daddy? Is it Joseph? That's, the, that's the, the nativity story. He's the son of Joseph. Here we see the emphasis is, is he's the son of God. Right? That's the conflict. Who is Jesus' father? Okay? So go down to uh, um, chapter 3, verse 23. Now, now, verse 22 ended with, you are my beloved son. From the Father, God the Father, okay? Notice where verse 23 starts. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as it was supposed of Joseph. You see how this is being developed? Who's the real father of Jesus? So for many people, Luke's putting the genealogy in the middle of chapter 3. Jesus has been born. The shepherds have already come. They heard the angels sing. Jesus has been baptized. John the Baptist has been doing his thing for some time. And then Luke goes, let me interrupt the, the, this, this, uh, this show and give you this important announcement. Jesus is the son of, as it was supposed, Joseph. Joseph was the son of, right? It interrupts the flow of the narrative. If you were to compare this to Matthew's gospel, you get the ministry of John the Baptist, followed by the baptism of Jesus, followed by the temptation of Jesus. It's a, it's a narrative that flows naturally because Matthew puts the genealogy of Jesus, page one, line one. Jesus, uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the, uh, um, the son of David, son, son of Abraham. Luke puts it in the middle of the narrative, and it, it interrupts the flow. The reason he does it is because the language of son... Notice there, starting in verse 23, the end of the chapter, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of. If we had time, we could go back to Matthew's gospel, and the language is father of, father of, father of, father of. In Matthew's gospel, he starts with Abraham, who is the father of Isaac, who's the father of Jacob, who's the father of Judah. In Luke's gospel, it starts with Joseph, who is the son of, who's the son of, going all the way down to uh, Abraham and then down to Adam. It's flipped. 
And the reason is because Matthew wants you to see the genealogy from its founding. He's the son of Abraham. This is Matthew 1 1, son of Abraham, thus he's Jewish. Son of David, thus he's the messianic king. He has the right to the throne. And that's Matthew's gospel in a nutshell. He's the, he's the Jewish royal messiah. He's the royal priest. Luke's account uh, presents Jesus as the son of man, but he does so um, through, 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 through this narrative. Is Jesus, as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, or is he someone else? Verse 22, you're son of, the, of, the, of God the Father. Verse 23, is the son supposedly of Joseph. You see this juxtaposition is right there in, in, in the passage. So when we come to chapter 4 in the temptation, this language is apparent. You can look at verse 3, and you can look at verse 9. Satan asks the, or says the same thing. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Verse 9, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. You see what the question is really all about. In this moment of vulnerability, it becomes a question of identity. It makes sense that the son of a carpenter is out here in the wilderness because you think you're something, but really you're just a carpenter's kid. Go back home. You're a nobody. You're like John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah. But if you really think you're the son of God, the son of God, turn the stones into bread. After all, why would God let his son go hungry for so long? Why would God allow his son, the divine creator of the cosmos, while hungry, leave him abandoned in the wilderness away from the people he's called to save? No one knows who you are. You're nobody. I tell you what, I'll take you to the top of the temple. Go all Superman, and then people will follow you. Isn't that what you want? Notice the, the lust of the flesh, I'm hungry, pride of life. I deserve this. You see, the question is not what, what you do or don't do. That, 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 that's the ends where the sin is. The question is, who are you really? And in that moment of vulnerability, Satan attacks identity. This continues. You go down to chapter 4, verse 20. So we have this temptation with Satan. Then we think, okay, it's switched off. We're going to move on to the miracle stuff. No, no, no. The temptation, the spiritual temptation with Satan is, is in the beginning. It continues with his own people. It's the same temptation. Go down to chapter 4, verse 20 to 22. He wrote up the scroll. Remember, Jesus goes into Nazareth. He, he reads from Isaiah, and he says, dude, this is all about me, right? And this is where you pick up verse 20. He wrote up the scroll, gave it back to the tent, and sat down, and all eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? It's the same story, isn't it? Because he claimed in reading Isaiah, I'm the son of the father. And the response is, no, you're a nobody. It's a small town. You're just the carpenter's boy. And this is where Jesus says a prophet isn't welcome in his own hometown. The issue of identity, sonship. Um, then you can go down to chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus is going to heal a, a number of, of demons, or he's going to exercise demons. Verse 34, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. That's been the question for, for two chapters now. Who is Jesus? Is he the son of Joseph? Is he the son of God? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
This is clarified if you go down to verse 41 of chapter 4. The demons, so notice, same context of exercising demons. The demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. Interesting, isn't it? That in the narrative so far, the, 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 the spiritual world know exactly who Jesus is. And that's what they're trying to get Jesus to reject. The earthly world have no idea who he is. They still see him as the carpenter's kid. So when Jesus here is facing temptation, the issue is that of identity. It's a vulnerable moment. Would God allow me to go through this? Wouldn't God want me to be happy? What sort of God is this? Who am I? So the choice for Jesus is between two father figures. Can we trust God the Father? We get this in the... uh, the first temptation, right? Notice, has God really said, right? Um, uh, uh, God knows you're not going to die the day you eat of it. It's calling the question God's goodness and God's care as father over us. Same thing with uh, Esau, uh, or rather uh, Israel, in, in, in the wilderness story. Remember that uh, in Exodus 4, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This is the language of fatherhood really begins here with Israel. And I say to you, let my son go that, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. That's the whole point of the 10th plague. That, that to rob Israel of their right will result in, in, in an act of judgment upon Israel or upon Egypt. So if you rob my first son from me, I will rob your first son from you. This is why later the prophet Hosea says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. Story back to the Exodus. And out of Egypt, I called my son. That verse is clearly about the Exodus. Clearly. Everyone agrees with this. Matthew suggests it's about Jesus. And Matthew, remember when Jesus um, uh, is hiding out in, in, in Egypt till Herod dies? And then Joseph gets a dream to go back to, to Israel. And Matthew says, this was to fulfill, was written by Hosea, out of Egypt I call my son. Now, this passage has nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with Israel and the Exodus. However, thematically, it has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus as the firstborn is the embodiment of Israel. It's the same story. Again, go back to Matthew. You can see there's a baptism story that goes with the Red Sea. There's a Pharaoh story with Herod. There is the temptation for 40 days to 40 nights. After that temptation, he goes to climb a mountain where he gives a new law called the Sermon on the Mount. It is the same story in Matthew that you get in the story of Israel. Okay? So, so that language of sonship is so important for, for Israel. And once they entered the wilderness, the sons of God rebelled because they wanted a different father. They wanted to be fed rather than to be fathered. You remember what, what we read earlier about man shall live by bread alone. God allowed as a loving father for them to go hungry, tested them so that they would not live by bread alone. So they would not be driven by their appetites, that they would, they would humbly trust in the father who loved them. So we get this in Deuteronomy uh, 1. You murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt. This is after the, the, the spies come back. They say the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. That's a, it sounds like Tower of Babel there, doesn't it? It's amazing how the Bible hyperlinks to itself. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. 
Notice there's a question of which father is great and which father truly loves us. God, God the father doesn't love us. The, the, the father of Anakim, the giants, they do. Yeah, Don. Yeah, that's the whole point. You, he is not a loving father. He's a liar. There's a better father out there. And the Israelites here is saying the father of the Anakim, or Anak is the father. So the sons of Anakim, uh, the I am there is plural. So the sons of Anak, the giants, remember? So now they're building towers up to heaven like, like Babel. Um, and they're, I think they're the ones that are connected to the Nephilim you get in numbers. Anyway, so, so here it's all about sonship. So he goes on, um, in the winters where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. What's the message of Moses here? You worried about who the father of the Anakim are. I'm telling you, you need to remember who your father is. That's always the deal, isn't it? It's always the deal. Think about it. when you were a child and you wanted to go over your friend's house or you wanted to, to your parents to buy you something or try something out, right? And they said no. Chances are at some point you said something like, oh, yeah, well, Johnny's parents let him. What did you just say? I trust that father over my own. Temptation, when you get down to it, is a question of identity. Who am I? And will I find my identity humbly and trusting in my father? Who, though it may, things may not be as I want them to be, I trust that he will take care of me. I've, I've, when the kids were really little, you know, they would whine and complain because that's about all the kids are good for. And, and I would say, guys, do you really believe that if we were, if we were to come down to it, and uh, formula is the least of our problems, um, that I would starve before I let you starve? Yeah, daddy, we believe it. Okay. Stop the whining and complaining about these little things, right? I have your best interest in mind. What I don't want is every time I make a decision, you need details. A no's a no. Yes is yes. Get over it. Sometimes a yes, you, don't, you, you prefer no. Sometimes a no, you prefer yes. I am your father. Get over it. I love you, right? Every temptation, it really comes down to that. We wish we had another father. Um, and this is why John can conclude, see how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. How do we know that we are the children of God and, and that God loved us? Um, it's because of the cross. It's the way love works in, in the New Testament. So that is vulnerability. Second is grace. We'll look at these quickly. Uh, Thomas Aquinas suggested that there are really only four <coughs> idols, wealth, power, pleasure, and honor. What he means by an ambition, uh, pride, essentially. Um, he, he may be on to something there. And so when we look at temptation, there needs to be a discussion on idolatry. We don't have time to go in a full discussion of idolatry. But basically the way idolatry works is we are told uh, to fear functional hells. I don't want to be fat. I don't want to be ignorant. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be poor. I don't, I don't want to be insignificant. I don't want to be a failure. I don't want X, right? And so we create these functional hells. And to fix those functional hells, we create functional heavens. So, so we'll say, you know what, if I had a, the ideal husband who loves me, then, then, you know, I won't have to be so worried about it. If I just had a bunch of children who, who would just call me mother or, or whatever, who relied on me, then I feel really important and needed. If only someone would respect me in the office and then I can get that promotion, I can fix everything here, right? There's that functional hell that, that then we create this functional heaven. So what we end up doing is we end up hungering, craving something uh, that is essentially an idol, 
a false god, and we keep feeding on it, desiring it, wondering why it is we are still hungry. It's like drinking ocean water. In an effort to satisfy this thirst, we end up becoming more thirsty. What the gospel does is it brings satisfaction to that thirst. So I showed these verses last week, so I don't want to spend forever on them. Jeremiah 31, for I, God, have satisfied the weary soul and have replenished every sorrowful soul. That's the hope of the gospel. Psalm 81, those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, but he would feed you with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Or Proverbs 10, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. He thwarts the craving of the wicked. Here's the verse, Proverbs 27, 7. One who is full loathes honey. I bet you've been at a restaurant, right, where you ate too much, right? And then the, the waitress comes by and says, who's up for dessert? Now, do you want dessert? I just had banana pudding from Sonny's, right? I mean, because I met mom and dad over, over after the Capitol. And, and let me tell you, it's good. I could not have eaten that had I eaten, actually eaten that Sonny's, right? Because I always get, get the big thing and it's just delicious, right? So, so I could eat it whenever I had you know, a little bit of time between meals. But, but So those who are full, they don't even want desserts. But the one who is hungry, everything that is bitter, let's call that red stuff, is sweet. So the goal is, is to be full. And that can only come when we, when, when we come to Christ. This is articulated by Jesus to the woman at the well, isn't it? If you come here, you're just going to be thirsty again. I'll give you living water. You'll never be thirsty. Lord, give me this water. Okay, go get your husband. You see the functional hell turn into a functional heaven? What does Jesus say? You can give all that up and you'd be satisfied. Because you got me. What about the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which we could have used today at the Capitol? Uh, turning that last Chick-fil-A box into about a dozen more. is Jesus says, you are craving for a king, but I'm the bread of life. I'll give you something far more than that. Well, one last thing. We don't have time for this, but disciplines. Okay, we didn't talk about this last week. It's interesting. We are talking about self-control, the appetites. There is a spiritual discipline that addresses this head on and is the one Baptist, American Baptist, American Southern Baptist, do not like is the one we hope we never preach on, we never read about, never have to address honestly. And you, you know what it is, right? Fasting. Fasting is the spiritual discipline of self-control and holding back. But when we can do it physically, then we can do it spiritually. That is why fasting is always associated with the spiritual disciplines, fasting and prayer. Fasting is not the end. Okay, so I went two days without eating, aren't I spiritual? It's rather, I denied myself food so that I can fill myself with the water of life. Why don't we Americans fast? Because we've turned our stomachs into a God. We fear going hungry. We fear not having enough. You cannot get an American to do anything unless food is involved. Think about it. You can't. How many people go to worship on Sunday morning so they can go eat, out to eat afterwards? You're not wrong with that. I do a Bible study at the Capitol, and I always bring free food. Encourage people to come. And this is how we function as Americans. And here comes the Bible says, when you fast, Jesus says that in Matthew 6. This is how you ought to do it. And he says in the context of prayer. No wonder then the average American will not prioritize worship over sports. 
when I prioritized the Bible over entertainments. We spent two years locked in our houses. What, do you, what are the chances the average American got caught up on Netflix or got caught up on Bible reading? Got caught up on the Netflix. Why? Because if we can't resist food, and I'm guilty of that, I've confessed it, how are we going to resist that person flirting with us in the office and we're married? How will we be able to resist endless hours on our phone for pointless entertainment and distraction? How can we resist real spiritual warfare when we can't resist a little more gravy? Again, I'm guilty of that. So there is an answer to this. Come to Jesus and you will be full and satisfied. And as you come, he says, bid farewell to this world where you will truly be satisfied. Let's put it into practice. All right, I'm in trouble because we talked about fasting. So uh, how about we close out in prayer?